Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Our text will be the first ten verses of Revelation 19 as we continue through our study. After today, we only have uh, four sermons left in our study, so we're getting closer to completing the book. And this morning, as I mentioned, our text is in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you picked up a Bible underneath the back table... You'll find Revelation 19 beginning on page 1039. And I want to ask if you would, if you would stand to honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word this morning. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Hear the reading of God's word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah, and praise from the throne came and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, We know that just as you gave this book, you gave it at a time when your people were, in great numbers, suffering. In fact, you told some that they were going to be imprisoned and to be faithful to the point of death. You acknowledged to others that they had witnessed their own brothers, who were once present with them, had become martyrs for the faith. And you knew, you knew in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their distress, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their temptations, you knew they needed these truths. And Father, in the same way, you know our lives. And though our lives may be different in many ways from theirs, we still face suffering to different degrees. We still face persecution to different degrees. Father, the distress of some is great this morning. The temptation 
that we can feel can be very strong to lure us away from Christ. So we pray that you would use this book to the same end in our lives. Use it to aid us in persevering, in holding fast to the testimony of Jesus. So God, use this text this morning. We pray for our good and for the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One theme that we see throughout the scripture as a whole is the idea that we're to live our lives now in light of what will one day be. So, for example, Jesus can tell us in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, you don't have to be like the pagans who who see this life as all there is, and so they're just storing up for themselves more and more treasure. He says you don't have to do that. You don't have to store up for yourself treasure on earth because you can be generous and hold loosely to what is yours, giving for the sake of his kingdom because you can store up treasure in heaven. In a similar way, he said, you don't have to pursue greatness here. You can pursue servanthood knowing that servanthood, when it is pursued here, will lead to greatness there one day. And then again, in similar fashion, we don't need to worry about whether or not men are recognizing and praising us for the good we do. So we don't go out and and, and give and, and make sure everybody knows we're giving or fast in such a way that everybody can see it. Jesus says you don't have to worry about that. Rather, do do that in secret, and your Father who knows will reward you openly. Live your life now in light of what one day will be. Even our Lord Himself, when God the Son took on flesh, we're told in the book of Hebrews, He endured the cross because of the joy set before Him. He lived now in light of one day what would be. Therefore, when we come to the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, because of that truth laid out that we live our lives now in light of one day what will be, these 10 verses prove immensely helpful for us because they lay out for us images of what one day will be. They lay out for us truths of what one day will come to fruition. If we were just to lay out these 10 verses in the map of the whole book, here's how I say they function. I believe that these 10 verses in this book function as an encouragement to the persecuted, tempted, and weary believers to keep persevering, to keep holding on, and to keep fighting for purity in light of what's coming. It's an encouragement to persecuted and tempted and weary believers To keep on persevering. To keep on holding on to their faith. To keep on fighting for purity in the midst of of great temptation around them. And keep doing that in light of one day what will be in light of what is coming. And because that was the design of its function for the original hearers, I think that's the design of these ten verses for us as well. Therefore, what I want to do then this morning is just lay out for you what I think just three things this text says are going to be true. One, one day, what we're going to witness. And then in light of those three things, just end with some exhortations to us. So number one, one day, God's reign will no longer be contested. One day, God's reign will no longer 
be contested. John describes this scene in these first three verses. He says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah is just a word that means praise the Lord. So this is a, this is a call to worship. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And then in the, in, in the first few verses, they, they begin to describe why God deserves praise. Because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That is, this is a declaration that the one who has all glory and the one who has all power has used it to bring salvation to his people. Therefore, they're rejoicing. Their day of salvation has come. We said throughout the book, a scene of salvation in the Bible seemingly without exception, involves the judgment of God's enemies. Again, just run through the whole Bible. The first promise of salvation, the serpent would be crushed. The Exodus, the salvation of Israel, meant the Egyptians were put down. David saves the people. Goliath dies. We go on and on and on, couldn't we? We see the same thing here. This is a a celebration of praise to God in the heavens Because he's brought salvation and that involves judgment. Verse 2, they're saying, praise the Lord for his judgments are true and just. This isn't an arbitrary, unjust punishment. God just didn't say, finally, I had it up to here and he's exploding. This is his just, righteous judgment. And he says, he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And it wasn't just this great multitude in the heavens, but even verse 4 says, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they jumped in and joined in this worship saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you as servants who fear Him small and great. How do we then sum up this scene that's eliciting such praise? This, this celebration of salvation, this celebration that the glory and, and pa- glorious and powerful God has brought about the salvation of His people, that He's judged Babylon. Or remember, Babylon is this, is this personification, this, this picture of the, the worldliness of the culture around them, the worldliness of the state that, that's luring them away, calm and enticing them. Delight in pursuing riches as your aim. Pursue your lust and, and, and sexual morality. And, and these standards were evolving enough in their culture that when the believers didn't pursue them, they were mocked and persecuted and some even killed. So that Babylon, this woman, this great prostitute that, that personifies all this worldliness, it was said that the blood of the martyrs were on her hands. And now she is being judged. Now all the worldliness and everything the world chased after And those involved in it are being judged. I think what this picture is in the first five verses of Revelation 19 is the Lord beginning his uncontested reign. Now, we know that our Lord reigns right now. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the book began stressing again and again and again the fact that Jesus reigns. Revelation chapter 1, 5, he was called the ruler of the kings of the earth. The very next verse. In Revelation 1, 6, we're told he had glory and dominion. Two verses later, he's called the Alpha, the Omega. A few verses later, in 1, 20, we're told that he holds the churches in his hand. So clearly, Jesus reigns right now. He reigns at the Father's right hand. He's reigning over the earth. The book of Hebrews says... 
we see him, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, reigning at the Father's right hand. And yet, we acknowledge at the same time that we also see that his reign in this age is being contested, isn't it? I mean, after all, Jesus could say, I'm not going to allow anyone to do anything that would violate my revealed will. He could say, I'm not going to allow any rebellion. I'm just going to show my reign perfectly. But he doesn't. In this age, he allows his reign to be contested. We've seen this throughout the book of Revelation. The dragon, Satan himself, is roaring like a lion across the world, seeing whom he may devour, so that we must pray, Lord, keep us from the evil one. The dragon, uh, Satan, is employing the state throughout the age so that often they are persecuting the church and even killing them. This was happening in the first century as the Roman Empire was, was bringing to death many believers who would not turn from Jesus Christ as their Lord. The false prophet, this voice of deception in the age, the, the prostitute, this, this woman who personifies the worldliness of the age, we see that Jesus allows his reign to be contested in this age. So we say on the one hand, Jesus reigns, and on the other hand, we're right to acknowledge, but we don't always see the full implications of that, do we? We see this constant uh, allowance of Jesus allowing his reign to be contested. We often suffer at the hands of Christ's enemies. In fact, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But what Revelation 19, 1 through 5 reminds us is, one day his reign will no longer be contested. One day there will no longer be sin. There will no longer be Satan. There will no longer be death. There's coming a day when you and I are not going to have to pray anymore, Lord, keep us from the evil one. For he will be fully and finally put down. There will be a day when it will have been millions and millions of years since you and I last struggled with sin. There's coming a day when you and I don't have to face the reality of death anymore and be haunted by it and grieve because of the reality of it. There's coming a day when Satan and sin and death and every enemy of God will be put down and it will be clear Jesus Christ reigns uncontested. This was shown to us in Revelation 11 when we are told their day is coming when the saints will be able to say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever. So one day, and this is the call for praise in this text, one day we're going to see that the Lord will reign uncontested forever. A second truth from this text. One day we will be able to understand the judgment of God's enemies from God's perspective. One day, we'll be able to understand the judgment of God's enemies from God's perspective. Now, I could say here, simply, one day we'll see the, enemies of, the judgment of God's enemies. And that's true. That's what's going on in the text. I mean, they're, they're celebrating the fact that the prostitute has been judged. In verse 3, they're, they're saying, praise God because our smoke goes up forever and ever. But I think I know us well enough to know these verses can be a bit unsettling for us, can't they? After all, God's enemies aren't simply Satan. 
or they're not simply the, the concept, the reality of sin or death, God's enemies are also people, aren't they? God's enemies are people. Uh, this past week, uh, Ellen Klein did an a art exhibit uh, downtown where uh, she showed just the number of Christian martyrs who are martyred on average on a daily basis. And the, the number that, that her research had revealed was 400 a day. It's just a great number. Even, even if somehow that number skewed, and it's only 25% of that somehow, 100 a day. When we think of the martyrs in history, they were killed at the hands of people, weren't they? Wicked men. Yes, we're right to say Satan devoured them in one sense, yes. Sin devoured them, yes. Death reigned over them, yes. But in another sense, we're right to say that was carried out by the hands of people. God's enemies are people. And one day, the people who Babylon, this great prostitute's personifying, the people who are God's enemies, the people who are carrying out worldliness, the people who are luring away God's people, and the people who are even killing and persecuting God's people, they themselves will be judged. But I know it's a bit unsettling for us, isn't it, to, to, to read this in verse 3. Hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. I mean, it's unsettling for us to say, yes, one day unbelievers will face God's judgment. That, that, that doesn't seem to elicit in our hearts, does it, the cry, hallelujah. And we don't sing songs, do we? We won't have songs on our screen this morning. Let's see. Hallelujah for another unbeliever has died. We don't hear of a story of, of a tidal wave hitting, hitting a coast and, and killing hundreds of people and hundreds of people who may very well have been unbelievers. And if they are unbelievers, are going to face the judgment of God. And we hear that and we say, yes, yes, more unbelievers have died. More unbelievers are facing God's judgment. Hallelujah. Let's call a special church service and get together. We don't do that, do we? And, and so we see this verse, verse 3 of Revelation 19. And the people of God are rejoicing, saying, Hallelujah, for the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And I think it can just leave us unsettled. So how are we to think about this? Well, let me just make a few observations from Scripture broadly, and then we'll try to bring it together. I, I don't have these numbered uh, on the screens overhead, so... My first observation is this. God reveals to us that we're not to delight in the death of the wicked in this age by revealing to us that he does not delight in the death of the wicked in this age. So, so first of all, as we just think, how does the scripture bear testimony to how we're to think of unbelievers? Well, one... God reveals to us that we're not to delight in their death. We're not to throw that party and get together when unbelievers die because God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked in this age. Uh, just, just two verses, Ezekiel chapter 18, 23 and verse 32. Here's how they read. The Lord says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. So God says, I just want, his revealed heart is not one of delight when the wicked die. 
and are going to go on to face his judgment. And if that's not God's heart, and we're to picture God's heart in this age then, then our heart should not be one of rejoicing when wicked men die in this age. A second observation. Very similar, but it just takes it a little step further. Because we know that God wills for men in this age to come to repentance, so our will should be that men come to repentance in this age. Because we know God's heart, His will is that men come to repentance in this age, therefore my heart, my will, your heart and your will should be that men come to repentance in this age. We already saw that in the Ezekiel reference. Remember, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. He would rather men repent, he says. But we also see it in 2 Peter 3.9. Many will say, judgment's taken forever, it's not going to come. Peter says, no, 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 God's being patient. He's putting off final judgment because he's being patient. Why is he being patient? Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, because he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, when you and I align our heart with the heart of God, our heart toward God's enemies in this age is we labor and yearn and pray and preach in hopes that they would repent and believe. A third observation. It's right to long for justice. A third observation. It's, it's right to long for justice. We see this often throughout the Psalms, don't we? The psalmist praying that that God would bring justice. So we see someone being abused and we long for justice to be done, don't we? Just, Just reading headlines from the newspaper sometimes just causes me to cry out, God, please bring justice. We hear of children being abused. We rightly long for justice. We have crime being done. We, we pray, even as Aaron prayed earlier for our government leaders, one of the things I think we pray for if we, if we want peace in our land is that government leaders would enact justice. And sometimes that means the, the destruction, the death of wicked men. In fact, just this weekend at the elders retreat, we were talking about the, the idea of uh, self-defense. So in our country... Not only does the Bible tell us that that the government does not wield the sword in vain, but they are ministers of the Lord bringing about justice. The government in our country has seen fit to say there are certain times when you are an extension of the government and you are allowed to bear the sword. So in self-defense, you're allowed to bear the sword. In that act, you're, you're defending yourself, but you're enacting justice as an extension of the sword of the government, aren't you? Or when you protect someone else's life and have to do the same thing. So, so it's good and right, we see it in the text, to, to long for justice. A fourth observation. In Revelation chapter 6, the saints who had died and were with the Lord cried out for God's judgment. The saints who died and were with the Lord were crying out for God's judgment. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, they were crying out, God, avenge our blood. How long, O Lord? Their cry wasn't simply, how long till you bring your saints here, but how long till you judge your enemies? Avenge our blood. 
Interestingly, it was the Lord who exhibited greater patience in that situation, wasn't it? He says, wait, wait. More people are going to die for their faith. There are going to be more martyrs. And then judgment will happen. Finally, a fifth observation. We could say much more, but I'm going to limit it to this. A fifth observation. If you're right there in Revelation 19, you can probably just look over, maybe on the same page, at Revelation 18, verse 20. And notice this command to the saints in heaven. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. That is, Revelation 18.20 commands the saints to rejoice when God's judgment is poured out on the great prostitute, on God's enemies here. So what do we do then with all of these points? How do we think? I think we can sum it up basically with three thoughts in my own mind. The first one in light of that biblical evidence is this. Until the day of final judgment, our hearts should yearn for the repentance of sinful men. Until the day of final judgment, our hearts should yearn for the repentance of sinful men. Our stance in this age until the end should be a desire to see wicked men come to faith in Jesus Christ, repent of their sins. Even when they've committed atrocities against us. Think of Jim Elliot. Better think of Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot goes to a people and he and others with him and they're attempting to bring to them life. I mean, these are people who are bound for hell. And, and Elliot goes to them, not because he wants to profit off of them, not because he wants to make a name for himself among them, but because he wants to bring the gospel to them. There's nothing more loving. He's loving these people. He and his partners, they bring the gospel to these people, trying to bring to them the words of life. And these people who are enemies of God, kill them. Make them martyrs. Elizabeth Elliot and the other wives of the missionaries employ themselves. Here's the response. They employ themselves in continuing to try to reach these enemies of God with the gospel. And eventually they do reach them with the gospel. So that there are even written testimonies or movies made now about these people who killed her husband and now they can stand together reconciled. That's what the gospel does. So our response in this age shouldn't be, they killed the believer. God, take them out. I want everything. My heart's disposition is that they would die. And when they do die, we're going to celebrate. Our heart, though, rather is, God, please, please bring them to repentance. That's our heart in this age. At the same time, at the same time, it is good and right to find our hearts now yearning for justice. I know there's a tension there, but that's just going to be. It's, it's good and right to find our hearts yearning for justice because sometimes the justice of, of, of wrath and judgment toward one is the judgment of salvation toward another, right? Sometimes it's going to take removing that man to save this man. This man's beating this man. It's going to cause the removal of that man for that man to stop being beaten. So, so it's, at the same time, our heart is a dis- disposition of, I want repentance, I, I, I want faith, I want them to turn, I want them to live, and at the same time, there is going to be this longing for justice. 
But then I do want to skip ahead to the age to come and make this final observation. It's the main point I've made here in the text. One day, and I think we'll probably see it at two levels, it seems when believers die, we're going to be able to get a different perspective on judgment. I just based this on Revelation 6, the martyrs crying out for judgment. But I'll definitely say, on the day of final judgment, when we are with the Lord forever, we're going to be able to see the judgment of God's enemies from God's perspective. So I don't think on the final day, knowing God's enemies have been judged, is going to cause any turmoil in our hearts. Rather, I think the scene is going to be Revelation 19, a cry for praising God and rejoicing. And it's, I think, a view that I don't know that we can have right now. I don't mean it's not a view that we should have right now. I mean, I don't know that it's a view we can have right now. I don't know that we can have the perspective of God where we see evil as it should be seen, where we, where we see uh, judgment as it should be seen, nor do I necessarily think we should. In this age, my heart and your heart should be to see men reconciled to God. We, at this point, we're spending our life to see wicked men come to repentance and faith. So, but one day... One day, when we're there with the Lord forever, I believe we'll be able to see God's judgment from God's perspective and it will elicit praise in our heart because we'll know everything God does is good and just and right and praiseworthy. One day we'll see His uncontested reign and one day we'll see even the judgment of His enemies, the salvation of His people, perfectly from His perspective and it will cause us to rejoice. A third Observation from the text. One day we will be with Christ and vindicated before all as we are clothed with His righteousness. One day we'll be with Christ and vindicated before all as we're clothed with His righteousness. The scene in heaven wasn't simply rejoicing because of salvation through the judgment of God's enemies, but also this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has brought His church, His bride, to be with Him forever. So we read in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. That is, this is loud, isn't it? And they're loudly crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. To exult means to rejoice. Let us rejoice. Let us show great joy and give God glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day we will be with Christ forever. One day He's coming to get us. As we said last week, as we prayed, because Josh Ellers, one of our members, who is engaged to another one of our members, Maria Dumkova, and, and Josh went off to Elizabethtown. But is saying to Marie, I'm going to come back and make you my bride. So that both of them right now are anticipating that day. That's the scene we have with Christ right now. He's gone away, but he's coming back. And he's going to get us. And Revelation 19, 6 and following celebrates that. The wedding feast of the Lamb when he will come back and take us to be with him forever. And in that moment, there will be an act of vindication. 
The world is constantly mocking and persecuting and harming and even killing believers for the way that they're living their lives and the things they're professing and the things they're teaching. Here, though, is vindication. Note in verse 8 that not only is the bride with the Lamb, but it's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Now, what's interesting about this is we've heard about fine linen before. Look back at chapter 18. Chapter 18 is uh, this, this, as if this, this poem, these, these dirges or laments about the judgment of Babylon, worldliness, uh, pictured here as this great prostitute. But look what we read of her in chapter 18, verse 16. This woman is also personified as a city. Verse 16, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. But we know she wasn't beautiful. After all, we read in chapter 17, verse 4, this woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So worldliness, Babylon, this great prostitute, is pictured as someone who has all of this external beauty. She's clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and jewels and gold, and she looks so attractive. But when you get close, you see that she's holding in her hand a cup full of her abominations and full of sexual morality. That is not truly beautiful. But notice, on the other hand, this contrast of the bride. She, too, is clothed in fine linen. I think that's specifically mentioned here to contrast the great prostitute. She's clothed in fine linen, but in her are abominations and sexual morality. The bride, she, too, is clothed in fine linen. But what makes her distinct, what makes her uh, more attractive than the great prostitute? It's that the fine linen, bright and pure, they are the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see what the world has exalted as fine linen? Look at the prostitute. Look at the worldliness. Look at everything she has. She's beautiful. She has riches. She's beautiful. She has power. She's beautiful. She's delighting in sexual morality. She's beautiful. She's whatever else that the world holds out to us and sin holds out to us. It's beautiful. And now she's brought down and we're showing this is beautiful. This is really fine linen. This is fine linen, bright and pure. And what does she have? The righteous deeds of the saints. You see, there's coming a day when we will be vindicated. Yes, right now, we press on in faith. We pursue righteousness at great cost, but one day we'll be vindicated and the Lord will show that was true beauty. When they turned away from the things of the world and turned toward righteousness, they got everything that they should have been chasing. So it's a call to us, isn't it, to pursue righteousness. If if the saints are going to be clothed with righteousness on that final day, then we should pursue it. Why then, if it's the righteous deeds of the saints, do I say we're going to be clothed with His righteousness? Because notice again, verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So fine linen equals righteous deeds of the saints. Then read verse 8 again. It was granted her to clothe herself with the the righteous deeds of the saints. That is, 
all righteousness comes from the Lord. Now, we don't work this way often, but the Scripture does work this way logically. The Scripture often says, because God's going to do, you do. We often think, well, if God's going to do, then I won't do. But that's not how the Bible works. So, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So when you work out your own salvation, it's God who's wanting to in you and God who's doing in you. So even when I do, God gets credit. Think of what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 said. It's the Lord who before the foundation of the world prepared good works that I should walk in Him. So I pursue good works because He's given them to me to walk in. Think of all the text on persevering. Persevere. Why? Because God's going to preserve you. And so what we have here then is this picture, if you will, from beginning to end where it's God, before the foundation of the world, lays out works for you and I to walk in. Here are your good works. I'm giving them to you. It's granted to you. Then you and I make decisions in this life to walk in those good works, don't we? We pursue righteousness. We make decisions, significant decisions. I'm going to obey at this time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey the Lord. Then, going all the way to the end, on the final day, those good works that He prepared beforehand, that we did, that we chose to do, He says, I'm going to wrap you up in those like a garment of salvation. You get to wear your righteous deeds. But doesn't it feel weird to say, my righteous deeds? After all, He's the one that prepared them. He's the one that gave them. He's the one that enabled me to do it. Yes, there are righteous deeds in one sense because we do them, but everything is His. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. I think that's why the text can say it was granted her to clothe herself with the righteous deeds of the saints. And so, there is coming a day when we'll be with the Lord and we'll be vindicated, and we'll be clothed with His righteousness that He's given to us, clothed with our works that He gave to us to wear. Therefore, what should we do? Here is my exhortation. I've loaded all three exhortations just in one point. So if you take a note, point number four is this. Let us then hold fast to the testimony of Jesus... See difficult obedience as the Lord's gift and give thanks for God's grace. Let us then hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. See difficult obedience as the Lord's gift and give thanks for God's grace. Now it's interesting what happens in verses 9 and 10 after this scene as John witnesses the marriage supper of the Lamb. Read in verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What are we to do with that? That's weird, isn't it? What's going on? Well, I think it's kind of like, if you can say these two things together, it's kind of like and the very opposite of, the idea of shooting the messenger. Just last week, I walked into the auto store as the guy had been 
changing my oil, and he said to me, you're going to have to have new tires on your van. And I said, really? When did I last get tires on the van? It didn't seem that long ago. And he said, oh, it wasn't. But we got a 70,000-mile tire on the van, and it looks like they only lasted 35,000 miles. I'm really sorry. Don't shoot the messenger. And I went, ugh. And he said, man, I, I'm just relaying. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not sighing about you, just the circumstances. But the circumstances are so bad that I have nobody to share them with but you. <laughs> and he said, I, I, I understand. What do you do when the opposite experience is true? What would I do if the guy walked out and said, as I was changing your oil today, I accidentally looked in your glove compartment and I found a million dollars. It belongs to you. I might hug him. Now, people don't say, don't hug the messenger, right? We don't want to be shot. We don't mind being hugged. But the reason I would hug him, he very well could have said the same thing, couldn't he? No, don't hug me. It's your money in your glove compartment. I'm just relaying the message. But the reason we want to respond to messages like that with, with embrace, with some kind of something, is because the news is so good. When the news is so bad, you almost can't help but take it out on somebody. When the news is so good, you almost can't help but take it out on somebody. I think that's what's going on here. John is so caught up in the glory of the bridegroom and the bride being together this marriage supper of the Lamb that, the, that, that he hears this message, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. This is certainly going to be the case. And John just falls down and worships him. I think in one sense, yes, John knew better, but, but I think this actually upholds what a glory this is. It's so glorious, the news is, that John almost cannot help but worship the messenger. But he reminds him, I'm just the messenger. Don't worship me. Worship God. Him only. Angels are not worthy of worship. Only God's worthy of worship. I'm just a fellow servant with you, the hold of the testimony of Jesus. Now it ends with that interesting truth, the interesting statement, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think that can be taken one of two ways. Either you capitalize spirit in your translation and say something like this. Only, if anybody holds to the testimony of Jesus, that is, they, their testimony is Jesus Christ is Lord, they only say that because the Spirit is at work within them. Kind of like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It could be what the verse is saying. You can tell if you have the ESV, that's not how they take it. That's why they leave the Spirit uncapitalized. The second option would be to say something like this, to read the word spirit as if it means something like the heart or the essence of. So, so, so the testimony of Jesus, confessing Jesus as Lord, is the heart of prophecy. There's the, the angel saying to John, look, the heart of what we proclaim is that Jesus is Lord. And I think that latter is probably uh, the better choice, though, though either one of them uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be untrue. I think that latter is probably the better choice. So what then does that tell us? What then should we do? Well, first of all, notice in those verses that the angel directs John's response to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, right? This is, this is who he is. He says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Because we know what one day is coming, 
that God's going to reign uncontested, that, that, that his enemies will be judged, that we will be with Christ, vindicated for all of eternity, one thing we should do is hold fast to our confession. Now, I know that that's easy. It's a lot easier to say now than if there are men waiting outside the door saying, we're going to kill everyone who holds to the testimony of Jesus. Or perhaps in certain days of the Roman Empire, where unless you deny Jesus as Lord and says, I renounce my confession, you are going to die. So I know it's easier said than now, but regardless, whether it's easy or whether it's difficult, we must say, I'm going to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, whatever comes. Our temptations, I think, are a bit different. It may not be today that what's the greatest threat to you holding to your testimony of Jesus is not somebody killing you when you go out in the parking lot. Your greatest threat may be your lust, your desire for prestige, your desire for riches, your, your pursuit of the flesh. It may be that, that the greatest thing that's going to pull you away conf- from confessing Jesus as Lord is when Jesus has said, you can't do what you want. That might be the great temptation then for us to say, I want this so badly, I'm going to let go of my testimony of Jesus because he says I can't do this. Haven't we seen many people do this? Even in the history of our church here, we've, we've confronted people in their sins and they won't repent. And, and they say, I will rather turn away from Jesus and pursue my sin than hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the first exhortation, look, remember what's coming. Remember what's coming. I mean, that, that may sound good in the short-sightedness of it all. Yeah, you get your pleasure now. But one day his enemies will be judged. One day you will not be among the bride, among the bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let that factor in. Hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. A second exhortation. See difficult obedience as a gift from the Lord. See difficult obedience as a gift from the Lord. Now again, I'm drawing this mainly from verse 8. It's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Have you ever looked around at your life on certain occasions and said to yourself, it looks like the obedience that God's called me to do is just harder than the obedience he's called my neighbor to do? No doubt, you've probably thought that at times. Maybe you're looking at your setting. God's calling me to obey, and I'm single. And it seems a lot harder to obey single than it does married. That's how, maybe how you're thinking in your mind. Or maybe you're looking around saying, I'm married, and I'm in a really difficult marriage. And it would seem easier if the Lord called me to exercise obedience and righteousness in a better marriage or a no marriage. Or maybe God's God's called me to to labor and here's my illnesses. I'm laboring with this sickness or I'm laboring with with this disease or or whatever and God's calling me to obey and my neighbor's perfectly healthy called to obey as well. Why do I have to obey with migraine headaches and they have to obey with perfect health? Nate shared of a lady in Jackson who regularly brings into her home babies who are born to birth mothers who are addicted to crack. That is a hard thing to do. Why is she doing it? Because she believes God's called her to that. No doubt there are some nights when that baby is screaming and crying and inconsolable because what they want, unlike most infants that we raised in our home, 
isn't just food. But their whole being longs for something they can't have. And they're screaming and crying and they're inconsolable. And you can't sleep and that goes on and on and on. There no doubt can be temptations to say, my obedience just looks more difficult than theirs. And if you see that, if you see the calling of your obedience as some kind of curse from God, you will begin to grow bitter against your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you begin to see the call of obedience on your life as some kind of curse from God, this is going to happen. Write it down. You're going to begin to grow in bitterness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you're going to look around and go, why am I called to do this God and He's not? Think about Peter. Jesus, I'll show you, Peter, this is what manner you're going to die. What about John? Right? At least make him die too. We, we can do this, can't we? We know it. You're raising a difficult child. God, why isn't their situation as hard as mine? You're burdened to pick up and move your life to Botswana. God, why do we have to move there and somebody else doesn't? But here's the better way to see this. If you'll see the call of obedience you have in your life right now, in whatever difficulty the experiences of that obedience uh, are, if you'll see them this way, as a gift from God, prepared before the foundation of the world for you, because He wants to wrap you in that work of righteousness on the last day, then I think that can change your perspective. Why did God call you to obey in such a difficult circumstance? Because He wants to wrap you up with your obedience in those difficult circumstances. He wants to show you off on the final day. Look at this one. They were single and they didn't want to be and they honored me in their singleness. I'm wrapping them in the obedience in their singleness. Look at this one who was in a terrible marriage and they persevered faithfully and honored Christ. I'm wrapping them up in that righteousness. I'm showing them off. Look, 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 world. You said they should leave their husband. They didn't. Now I'm wrapping them up in that obedience. You told them they're crazy to bring that child into their home and they did it and they did it faithfully and I'm wrapping them up in that righteousness. I think that's Revelation 19.8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure and it's the righteous deeds of the saints. Hold fast and obey, seeing every call of obedience in whatever it's wrapped in as a gift from Christ to wrap you up on that last day. And show you off. And then finally, this all culminates then in the idea that we should give thanks. Because how in the world can you obey? You obey in that difficult circumstances because God's given you the grace, isn't He? He's given you the work. He's given you the righteousness. He's given you the grace to do it. He's given you the will to do it. He's doing everything. Just think about how many times this text encourages us to worship God. As I said, the word hallelujah means praise God. So chapter 19, verse 1, hallelujah, praise God. Verse 3, hallelujah, praise God. Verse 4, hallelujah, praise God. Verse 5, praise our God. Verse 6, hallelujah. Again, a call to praise God. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. And then finally, in verse 10, the angel says to John, worship 
God. This morning, our response to this text should be to praise God and give Him thanks. This morning, as we come to the table, let it be a time in which we give thanks and praise to God because one day will there be no more Satan, no more sin, and no more death. If you're battling and hating these things right now, one day you won't have to anymore. Praise Him because He's opened your eyes to the gospel. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for our sins, was raised on the third day, and some people are completely blinded to that truth. If He's opened your eyes to see and believe, then rejoice and give Him thanks. He's given you righteous deeds to do. So yes, some of them very hard because He wants to just clothe you in it and vindicate you on that final day. There's their faith. There's their faith. Because we get to be part of His bride. This is just then a dress rehearsal. There's a marriage feast coming. And every week we just go through rehearsal. We eat of this bread and drink of this cup because one day we'll get to eat and drink of it with Him. That should be our response if we're believers this morning. If you're not a believer this morning, then that terrible scene of His enemies being judged. Unless you repent, it will be you. I don't want you to die in your sins. Your Christian neighbors here, we don't want you to die in your sins. If you died today apart from Christ, we wouldn't celebrate. We would grieve because we know what you're facing. So if you're not a believer this morning, please repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus who lived and who died and who was raised. If you want to talk to me or or somebody else after the service, we'd love to talk to you about this. But right now, just turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ. And then make that public by being baptized. If you've already made your profession that your faith is in Jesus Christ this morning, then we want to invite you to come to the table. We're going to take a moment of silence. And that moment of silence, yes, the ushers will come forward. Yes, the musicians will get in place. But it's also an opportunity for us, just in the moment of silence, to say, God, aid me to respond to this word in a manner that's honoring and glorifying to you. So let that be our prayer right now in this moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table this morning.